great to be back together again. And um, so let's uh, look forward to this new series we're calling When Mankind Meets Its Maker. It's a way of talking about the cross. Um, I thought this would be helpful to do uh, because it's early in the year. And if I've finished the six weeks uh, before the Lenten series begin, it might even suit a church as a Lenten series, either the notes or the talks as just a possibility. So uh, hence uh, talking about the cross. Um, So when mankind meets its maker, and today we are not very nice people. Uh, Sorry about that, but that's the way it is. Uh, And I think you'll see as we go why we've chosen that particular heading. Now, if you like, there's a reading that goes behind what we're saying today, and I'm going to read that straight away, which is John 12, 27. And it says, Jesus says just before his cross, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and heard it and said that it thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus said, this voice has come not for your sake, for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Well, why is the cross so important for Christians? It appears to be tragic um, and useless uh, on the surface of things, and certainly that's the way the apostles would have thought about it uh, while it was happening and afterwards. But Paul says, on the other hand, it's God's way of uh, working powerfully amongst us, and that's what we hope and trust and pray that will happen uh, as we go through this series, that we'll just sense God working powerfully amongst us because that's, uh, he works through the cross. Uh, it's interesting when you actually turn on your televisions, we're constantly being subjected to bad news stories. The uh, television thrives on it, makes money apparently, so um, to talk about that way, or it gets, um, it's a political thing as well, I think. There's a book at home called The Politics of Guilt and Pity. If you can keep people being pity for themselves and guilty for something, then you can keep them motivated to do what you want. Uh, But that's another story. Uh, But here, um, when we see a sad story, we are inclined to, we're encouraged to have pity for them, we're encouraged to outrage, or more particularly to try and say it never happens again. Notice that one? I think it's particularly important for today to notice that, that we're living in a culture that is very self-sufficient and it's going to make sure nothing ever happens again if it's bad. Uh, so uh, those explanations for the cross are not going to work, and so we need to rely on the explanations that Jesus gives us himself, and then after the event, the apostles uh, spell it out as to what um, the full meaning of Jesus' own words and action as to what this word. So we need to rely for this horrific event. We need to rely on the explanation that's actually given. We need to find not pity or outrage or or avoid uh, prevention. We need to find meaning. And I trust that uh, as we look at this shocking event and what it all means, we'll actually see its meaning. Uh, Just before Jesus is arrested, uh, he says the time has come for the world to be judged, which we've just read. 
Now, if you actually think just in normal terms about what that might mean, and we will need to look at it in in John's Gospel particularly to see what it means, but that means that God set up his court, judgment of this world. Uh, He's going to expose wrongdoers. It's the purpose is to say, uh, you know, if you're on a jury, your sole duty is to say what happened. That's your task as a jury. Not to say what should happen to the accused, but to say what happened to expose wrongdoers and then to pronounce judgment. And that's what's involved in a court, and I think it all applies here. Jesus is speaking clearly about his death when I am lifted up. He spoke about this to show by what means he would die. This is the exact opposite of what seems to be happening. Um, every, uh, you know, Jesus seems to be the last person in control of anything, let alone presiding over a court. Uh, Jewish leaders agree Jesus must die. Pilate sentenced him to death and he's nailed on a cross. But it's very interesting if you actually read those accounts and ask yourself who's leading the charge here. It's not Caiaphas. It's not Pilate. It's not Herod. It's quite interesting, just as a narrative, you just read it through. Say, so who, who's in charge here? Um, and uh, so then he's nailed on a cross. But Jesus is saying, this is the judgment of the world. Um, not only that, but once he's actually on the cross, one thief who sees the light says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognises Jesus is in charge while he's hanging on a cross. He's a king. It's quite amazing, isn't it? And that he can pronounce judgement as to about where the thief will end up. And Jesus, of course, tells him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. He's exercising authority. So the um, trial of Jesus and the execution of Jesus is something of which Jesus himself is in charge, uh, or if you like, his father, Uh, But nonetheless, him under the Father, he's in charge of what is happening and he's calling it the judgment of this world. And he says it will happen when he's lifted up. We go back to chapter 8 of John and verse 26. I'll read that, John 8, 26 to 28. He says, um, I have much to say about you. He's talking about um, the people at a feast in Jerusalem. Feast of Booths, if I remember right, that's introduced back in chapter 7. He says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I heard from him. Uh, They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So he said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, now notice he says, I have much to judge. And now he's saying, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but just speak as the Father told me. Um, So he's um, going to be lifted up on a cross, uh, but he's also going to be lifted up. If you follow through the, the references to lifted up, you find that it means not only lifted up on a cross, but it also means lifted up. Uh, in resurrection and ascension. So um, he is going to be lifted up also in victory. Um, The judgment is not just a a verdict announced, the sentence will also be uh, uh, announced and carried out. Did you notice the, the two references there? Satan will be driven out. That's what you do after a court case. 
you, you take down the, the accused and, 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 and execute the sentence. Satan's will be driven out. At least he won't have a place in heaven anymore. And Jesus will be revealed as the world's true leader. Uh, he says that I am, when I'm lifted, will draw all men to myself. That's a powerful thing, isn't it? In other words, this world's prince will be cast down and I will gather my followers. There's a change of regime. Is that a way of understanding? In other words, not only is the sentence an announcement of who's guilty and who's not, but it's an actual carrying out of the uh, sentence. That's the way I understand it. I, I think that would be a fair way to read it. So the cross is not just something that happens to Jesus. It's a revelation of us. You see, it's the judgment of this world. That certainly was a judgment on Jesus, um, but it's, uh, he's saying, no, it's a judgment of us. And that's the first meaning of the cross, if we were going to look for its meaning. Now, there's some local content which we'll look at below, but I just want to say straight up front here, the implications of Jesus being killed are global, historic and final. We just need to see that, isn't it? It was a, uh, a, a radio program I was listening to with some music and the announcer said, um, oh, here's a carol and this is uh, about the Christian myth of Jesus Christ coming to this world. Well, I got on my text and uh, sent a text to them and said, um, uh, I said, that's a bit rich. I said, many of your viewers believe this is sober history. Do, do you follow that? Well, you can't let the world get away with saying these. Do you, do you follow? This is part of what I want to talk about later, that if you don't like the result, you try to destroy the evidence. And that's what's happening. Uh, the implications in, involved in Jesus being killed are global, historic and final. Effectively, the whole race is being assembled by its maker ahead of the final judgment day, which I think we can be extremely grateful for. And we are finding out where we stand. Now, I find that interesting, and this is an aside really, but in Acts 17, Paul is talking to some royal pagans, if you like, in Athens, um, who are so uh, misunderstanding what he says that they think uh, Jesus and resurrection are two new gods. Uh, so that's where they were in their understanding. But Paul says to them, uh, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the secrets of men by a man whom he's chosen, and of this he's given us assurance by raising that man from the dead. The events that happened in Palestine, uh, like I like to say these days, 200 decades ago, doesn't sound so long then, does it? But 200 times 10 is 2,000. Uh, 200 decades ago is a global event that's affecting everybody. And it needs to be announced in that particular way. It's the judgment of the world. These local Jews and Romans represent us all if it's the judgment of the world. Now, I need to spell that out, so we'll come to it. But first of all, let's go to the immediate setting because if we see how it actually happened, I think we'll see uh, what I'm meaning a little better. Jesus has spent three years attending sick and troubled people. Uh, it's interesting, I was just thinking of the statement, um, uh, unless you prepared to take up your cross and follow me, uh, you're not worthy to be my disciple. We can talk about the cost of discipleship. But if you think about that, uh, I mean, that, that wasn't just a, an empty analogy. Jews were accustomed to seeing their fellow citizens killed by execution. Apparently the um, governor of Syria, Roman governor of Syria, was on reputation, one of them was on reputation for crucifying 2,000 Jews. 
so here's a Jewish leader and he's saying, unless you're prepared to follow me. In other words, I'm starting something new here if you've got to follow me. Now, we can look at that as a cost, but think about Jesus had a following. I mean, he, he could say that because there's a lot of people who wanted to join. It's interesting, isn't it? You, your church got people cramming at the door saying, please let me in, please let me in. I mean, that, it's hard to get your mind around it, but that's what was happening. There was people just aching to get in on it. And, um, and the reason for that was that Jesus was just doing so much good. Uh, he was an exercise of power. He healed people. It was an exercise of compassion. People would come to him that wouldn't come to the Jewish rulers. And it was an exercise of truth. No one speaks like this man. There was three things happening which gather crowds. Uh, power and compassion and truth. And uh, people were gathering wonderfully. Uh, so Jesus has spent three years doing this. He's, he's shown that God is working in him powerfully. He's made it clear that whatever people think of him is what they think of God. He's not no shrinking violet. Uh, somebody observed that if you read the Gospels and you're just reading as a literary piece and you ask who is the key actor causing the action to happen, it's not the Pharisees, it's not the people, it's Jesus. He stirs up the trouble. He's leading with his chin, as we say. I've got something to say. He's announcing the kingdom of God. That's not sort of stuff in the corner, is it? He's made it clear that whatever people think of him is what they think of, think of God. And many have welcomed Jesus because of that. Now, I won't go through that because there's a lot of lines in this particular thing and I want to get to the key point. But if you just read John 7, you'll actually see that he says, uh, he's talking about judgment in John 7, uh, quite a lot about judgment. And he says, well, if you don't accept me, you're not accepting God. And you're showing what you're made of by that. Israel's leaders are jealous, of course, and they can't deny what Jesus is doing or the attitude of many people to him, but they decide to destroy him. So the point is that Jesus either attracts or repels us. Uh, when we've got a case history in Israel, but Jesus either attracts or repels us. We can't be neutral. He's in charge. He's revealing God. And if we don't want what God can do, as distinct from what we can do, will end up hating his son even though we think he's nice. I would say that one of the chief sins of our own Western countries is that we can do things. Uh, you know, I'm talking here about we're not very nice people. Well, a lot of people, they say, are not very nice people, and the stories on the news that show us that there's a lot of, lot of nice people. But you notice the next stage, we need to do something to stop that happening. And we're going to put laws in place, we're going to have education that will change the thing, we're going to, to, to change the, the storyline so that, that things work out differently. Uh, do you follow that the chief sin is not just the things that happen, but that we say we can fix it? That's the issue that's here. If we don't want, because, because there's a lot of people with all sorts of needs, but it was the people who knew that they had no answer to their life situation and went to Jesus. That was the difference. Not whether you had a problem, but whether you went to Jesus or not. And um, so if we don't want what God can do, we'll end up hating his son, even if we think he's nice, because the Jews thought that they had the answers to Israel's problems. They knew how to negotiate a peace with Rome, not Jesus. So they were in charge. So they want to stay in charge. 
If you don't want what God can do, you'll have to do, you want what you can do, and then this is what happens. So the world's evil is shown most clearly in its denial of its maker and rejection of his son. Uh, we think that sin is seen most by, by the breaking of the Ten Commandments. Well, that's true enough. Um, but in Romans, uh, Romans 1, when you have a whole catalogue of sins, those sins are not described as something that's going wrong, but as something that God is giving us up to, to show that we're not going to the right place, which is God. Do you see the same principle? Our, our problem in our world is not just that we do think God has to let things become dysfunctional here in order to show us that we're not getting it together and that we have a real problem. And that's his mercy to show us that really it's his wrath but it's also his mercy at the same time. So the world's evil is shown most clearly in its denial of its maker and rejection of his son. Uh, now Jesus has explained this already. If you just go back to chapter 3, uh, verse 18, uh, he's explained and uh, just after the very famous verse of 3.16 of God so loved the world, um, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Then 18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Whoever doesn't believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. So that would help us, wouldn't it? Now is the judgment of this world. If you link those two things in together in John, uh, this is the judgment that lights come into the world. That's why I've rehearsed what Jesus did. It was astonishing what Jesus did in terms of power and compassion and truth. It was a wonderful day. Um, as the old poem says, bliss would it have been in that day to be alive. <laughs> and uh, this is the judgment. Lights come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because... Their works were evil. So why didn't people come to Jesus? It's because if we don't come to his son, we're hiding something. And then we must destroy the evidence that this is who he is. We have to kill the son of God all over again. Uh, so killing Jesus isn't something that just happened in the first century. Literally, that's when it happened. But Paul says if you become... Uh, alive to the truth and then you turn away from it, you crucify the Son of God all over again. It's interesting, isn't it? Metaphorically, uh, we're still getting rid of Jesus. True? And we have to destroy the evidence by saying that the evidence isn't there. It's just a second, story, second century story made up to support a lifestyle. That's what our Gospels are, they say. Now, if we know we're sinners, we come to God and the son he sent. And here I'm just referring to 1 John, which is a, an incredible commentary on this whole thing. So I'll just have that open and, and make some references to it. Um, John says there's three different categories of people. If we walk in the light, uh, if we say we walk in the light, have fellowship with God, but walk in the darkness, then we lie and don't do the truth. And then he says if we say we have no sin, and then he says if we have said we have not sinned, do you follow? This is the judgment of the world. It's exposing what we are. But here is a Christian church uh, led by John the Apostle uh, as their pastor 
and he's got some people in his congregation who say that they haven't sinned or they haven't, they don't, they're not sinners, uh, or that they're walking in the light, but they're actually doing things that are contrary to God's will. Uh, and he says, no, come on, this is, this is not real. Um, and that's what he's talking about. Uh, if we know we are sinners, we come to God and to the Son who he has sent because he's, uh, he's promising to do something about our problem. Now, you think about how a person becomes a Christian. Why do they become a Christian? Because it's a good club to join? Well, if they truly become a Christian, they become a Christian because they've now got a problem they can't solve. They're not going to say, all I need is to uh, distance myself from my parents, from my grandparents, because they've been the source of my problem. All I need to do is to rewrite the narrative so that I know that I'm, uh, so that I'm you know, my own person and I'm not responsible to anybody. Whatever, do you follow? We've got to destroy the evidence. And, um, but if on the other hand, if we say, I've done this and I'm responsible for this and I can't fix this and I come to Jesus Christ, what have we done? We've come into the light. What happens in the light? Whatever happens is exposed by the light, isn't it? Walking in the light is not being a good person. Walking in the light is being seen for what you are. Do you see what happens when you come to Jesus? It's not being a good person. Uh, it's, um, it's just being shown up for what you are. I don't know about you, but the revelations you get about yourself as you get older don't get comfortable, do they? And uh, I've tried in vain a thousand ways, my fears to quell, my hopes to raise, but it's all a vain hope, isn't it? Do you find that there's a dynamic in coming to Jesus? And it's not about being nice. It's about being exposed for what you are and knowing you can't do anything about it and coming to him. So that's what John's arguing. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Do you follow? That what happens in the light is that we have discovered to be sinners. But then, if you walk in the light, the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. So, we played with the word sinners too much for it to register. That's why I've called this, we're not very nice. If I just said, we're all sinners, you'd say, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, yes, that's right. And what are we having for lunch? You know, I mean, it's so commonplace, isn't it? Uh, and it's even, you know, written up as a great film to watch. Because, boy, they're all letting loose here, you know. So... And um, it's a nice spicy thing, you know, committing adultery all over the place and so forth. Uh, Sinners is just a word that doesn't figure anymore. But if I say you're not very nice, well, I'm getting offensive. (laughs) And I think this is offensive. That's why I've used that phrase. If we say we don't need that kind of help, we're exposing something about ourselves that's sinister and dark. If you don't want help, There's not something very nice about you at all. Sorry. Our friends might think we're wonderful, but this won't make much difference when we have to stand before God. Now, how is this working out now? Well, Jesus explains it in chapter 16. It's a lovely passage. He says the Holy Spirit's going to come. and When the Spirit of God comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness of judgments. And he gives us the reasons. He'll convict them of sin because they don't believe in me. Isn't that interesting? I think of the number of times I've gone out to speak to 
people whose uh, wives came to church but the husbands didn't and I'd have a pastoral visit and then I'd sit down there and we'd have a discussion with the husband and, and talk about it and, and, and you try and convince a, a person that they're, they're a sinner. You've got Buckley's. Is that true? Uh, and we, we try to find, point out that they're not very nice people. Well, how far will you get? Not very far. <laughs> In fact, most of my friends, I think they're very nice people, even though God doesn't think they're very nice people. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I just think it's just lovely getting on with people, isn't it? Um, it's not a problem. But, um, but you see how significant it is that the the reason, the way in which God brings up the judgment of this world is not just telling us how many of his commands we've, although that's justifiable and proper for us to do, but he says, look what you do with my son. Look what you've done with my son. Look what you're doing with my son right now in the 21st century on our, in our newspapers and in our, in our media. Christ is being rubbished. He's been crucified all over again. I've got to remove the evidence that he's a good man and that he's done some very good things. Um, if, we don't, if we say we don't need that kind of help, we're exposing something that's sinister and dark. Oh, yes, I'm sorry, how is this working out now? Well, the accusation that we're sinners happens because we don't believe in him. And uh, sin and righteousness and righteousness because I go to the Father and of uh, judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Uh, finished product, finished done. Uh, this judgment on the world that happens when Jesus is killed is now being administered by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the apostles and of his church. It's happening now. Do, do you understand that as the gospel is going out, uh, it is the same operation because the Spirit of God through his church is actually taking the events that were the judgment of this world and they are announcing them and when the Spirit of God comes he takes those things about Jesus Christ and he applies them to the congregation and to the peoples to whom that message comes and again uh, Christ is being presented and what we do with Jesus Christ is the judgment that's actually taking place. It's already happened in history, but it's being worked out. And it's interesting, when Peter preaches to the first Christian sermon, Acts 2, have you noticed his proof that they are sinners is that they killed their Messiah? And it worked. Why? Holy Spirit was there. He was taking the things of Christ, he was applying it to them, and they were cut to the heart. We've blown it! God spent all these years since Abram, possibly 2,000 years, uh, telling us that we're going to be a special people and he's going to send something and, and this is going to be a blessing to the nations and look what we've gone and done. He sent him to us and we killed him. I mean, it couldn't have been more gross to actually, on that day, it would have been just so awful, wouldn't it? Uh, you killed him. Now, Peter doesn't accuse others to justify himself. That's generally the reason why we accuse others is to justify ourselves, you know. I'm better than what you are. He's, um, he's failed badly himself. Peter's in no um, cocky mood. Not after being lined up by Jesus and saying, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, and Peter's grieved that it's three times. There's not much cockiness left in Peter is there. There's no, I'm better than you in Peter. 
So he's not accusing anybody that he wouldn't apply to himself. Uh, He'd failed Jesus badly. We are not told this so we can blame the Jews either. Rather, the apostles are telling us what all humanity is like. It just happens to be that the Jews were specially prepared so that they would be the most likely to receive him. And it wasn't just the Jews that did it. It was also Rome that was irresponsible. It's very interesting. Now, I find it quite fascinating that there's not one occasion when you look at all the sermons in Acts when the cross is preached as an atonement. Not once. That comes in the epistles. It's an explanation that comes later. The prior and the initial proclamation of the cross is as an accusation. We're not very nice people. That's what the cross is meant to do, to show us what we do when God draws near. We don't like him. We want to be in charge. And what little problems we've got, we think we can fix. So God has to let it get worse. That's not nice, is it? Judgment's already happened. If Christ's death is the judgment of this world and we are the accused, we should be very interested then in how the trial proceeds. Would that be fair enough? You think, um, I don't take a lot of interest in court cases, but if it was mine, I'd be interested in every detail. Well, Jesus is dying. He's nailed to a cross. And the first thing we hear him say, Father, forgive them. But they don't know what they're doing. We're watching the judgment of the world. And there's more to say about that in subsequent studies, but this is the first judgment showing who we are. We're watching the judgment of this world. We're found guilty. The Son of God is asking his Father that we be not condemned for the crime. I don't know if you've thought about that, but if Jesus prays a prayer, does the prayer get answered? Or is that a wrong prayer? I take it nobody will be damned for killing Jesus. Jesus asked that they wouldn't. We get damned for not receiving the grace that he's showing there. Would that be fair comment? When Jesus shows us how wrong we've been, he's not wanting to condemn us. I didn't come to condemn. In the same verse he says, I've got much to judge about you, but in the same book he's actually saying, "Um, I haven't come for that reason. It's interesting. When Jesus shows we are wrong, he's not wanting to condemn us, but as a wake-up call, God is is asking us to look up at him. Do you understand? We're not here to pity Christ. We're not here to get raged about Christ. We're not here to try and say this will never happen again. We're here to hear the meaning that is being given to it by Jesus himself and the apostles. And the meaning, first of all, is you and I have done it. As long as we think we can fix ourselves, we're doing it. And uh, if you think you can fix it yourself and then somebody else is claiming to do it, you've got to remove their evidence that they're better than you. And it not only happened in the first century, it's happening in the 21st century. And that's how it is. God is asking us to look up and to look up at him. He's showing us uh, how horrible and inexcusable and miserable and poor-minded our attitude to him is. And I've had reason to think that not of other people for the purposes of a study, but to think that of myself. I think how miserable 
and how small-minded you can be, we can become when we think we've got our act together now, I've been a Christian a long time and I'm doing fairly well. And then the Lord has to show you something different. We are always in the position of needing to know that this is true. Uh, so God is asking us to look up at him. He's showing us who we are. He's saying there's a time to change our minds. And so that's what Peter does in his sermon. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. It must have been the most amazing day, to a day of Pentecost, to have had yourself exposed so radically and have your sins expunged so entirely. There's nothing like it. And let me say it, Nothing less than both of those things simultaneously is Christianity. It's interesting that Bonhoeffer, sitting in his prison, was writing his letters and papers to his friends and so forth. And in one of them he says, if Paul came back today and he was talking about, he wouldn't talk about circumcision because we don't circumcise people in Germany at the time, uh, but he says what he'd talk about would be religion. It's interesting, isn't it? that our religion, that is our Christianity, that is the way we go about being a Christian, just the doing the things we are doing, uh, might be something we're putting in place of a humble reliance on the Saviour of the world. Um, Paul is uh, probably, as we'd say, a better missionary than most and uh, a leader of the, of the tribe, says, I'm the chief of sinners. Was he just doing that for theological accuracy? No, that's how he felt. That's how it is. And uh, if we're not there, we're not really receiving the forgiveness because we're applying the forgiveness to our to it. We know we've got a we've got a cancer inside, and we're trying to treat a wart on our on our left elbow. And uh, Jesus says, "No, you've just got to know who you are." And every time you think you can do something without Christ, you're killing him all over again. I mean, it's just a case of time. Let it play its course and that's what it will do. So that's what Peter says. And so the day of Pentecost would be just a wonderful day and that's what Christianity is and nothing less than that is Christianity. People who know who they are and people who know who Christ is. This is what Jesus does in his letter to Laodicea. So now we're not talking about uh, the world, we're talking about ourselves, a church in Laodicea. A fascinating letter and um, here in these last of the letters in the Laodicean church which you remember was said it was, um, I'll read it, it says um, um, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot and would that you were one or the other so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold I'll spit you out of my mouth a way of saying you make me sick that's religion. Uh, it needs to be thrown out like circumcision was thrown out in the first century as an alternative uh, to trusting in Christ. What's the problem? You say, I'm rich, I'm prospered, and I need nothing, not realising that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may put clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and so, 
and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those of my love I reprove and discipline. And then that wonderful verse, I stand at the door and knock. What was the problem with the Laodicean church? That they were poor and miserable and blind and naked? No. That's what Christians are. Poor, miserable, blind and naked. The problem at the Laodicean church was they didn't know it. what it says you say I'm rich but they don't know that they're lukewarm now there it is it's just me setting out that if we're going to start with the cross we need to start with ourselves we need to see it as an expose we need to see it as a judgment coming down upon us not to condemn us but in order that we might see ourselves truly and we might come if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we can hear that word from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And oftentimes, when we're just pushing our own way through life and making out we've got the resources to be a good Christian now, we're just kidding ourselves. And 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 our, our, our fervour is growing lukewarm and we're not seeing Christ for who he is. And that's the judgment of the cross, that it exposes us for who we are so that we can actually look up and see his word from the cross. If we don't think we need his son, we're in the dark. We have a deadly ailment and we'll die from it if it's not exposed and treated. But if we hear the cry from the cross and his letter from heaven, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you move from just being your own person to opening your door to this wonderful Christ, you'll move straight into total full fellowship just like that. I'll sit down with him, sup with him, and he and she with me. It's all on. You can move from lukewarmness, which is the deadest of all the churches it would seem, in, in Revelation 2 and 3, and you can move into full fellowship in a second. And that's the power of the cross. Well, we'll have an opportunity to look more at that as we go along, but that's the first one today. Let's just pray. Father, we're so grateful that our Lord didn't listen to us or to Peter when he said he didn't need to die. And then when you, even from your cross, you looked at us all and you said, they just don't understand. You just don't understand what sin is. You don't understand what it's done to you. But I do, and I'm doing what needs to happen. Oh, Father, we pray that we'll see ourselves truly and come to the light, that it may be seen then that our deeds have been wrought in God and not by self-accomplishment. And we ask these things not only for ourselves, but we pray for those for your whole church, Father, that we would love to see alive in the way that they were alive on the day of Pentecost. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.